Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? Today's topic is planning resentments, which is the short version of a quote, an expectation is a planned resentment. When things are going well, we consider ourselves in charge. But the minute things go sideways in our relationships and expectations, we transplant the blame to someone else. We put our anger on someone else. And that someone is often God. If I'm mad at something that I was not given or about something that I feel that was taken from me or at someone who did something to me or at someone who did not do something to me that I thought they should have, then perhaps my concept of God is too small if that's where I'm laying the blame. In fact, that concept of God is so small that it makes the creator into a creature of the creation. And that only happened once a few thousand years ago. God does not make deals and bargains with us. In fact, that's exactly the devil's occupation. And I'll give you a couple examples of that in a bit. If God is the creator and the mover of all things, the devil is the deal maker who tempts us and accuses and divides and sows doubt. And this is what the classic play Faust is about. And this is what the country music song, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, is also about. So if you'd like your German classic literature with Faust, you have one there. And if you'd like a country music song that you can uh, listen to, The Devil Went Down to Georgia by Charlie Daniels is a famous one. In both cases, the devil is willing to make a deal and he dangles various things in front of the person he's trying to tempt. In, in the song, it's a golden fiddle. We each have a golden fiddle dangling in front of us. The interesting thing is that God does not deal in transactions like this. The reason why is he doesn't need us. It's us who need him. His moves are beyond our understanding, yet we must make choices in this world to do his will the best that we can. We have to try to understand his will. God already knows what's going to happen. We don't. We have free will. We don't know what he knows. On the flip side, the devil needs us, so he offers bargains. He persuades us to trade our souls for golden fiddles or honor or prestige or wisdom or something of this world. And we gladly barter these temporary shiny poisons of this world over eternal life of our souls. And then we think we came out on top of the bargain. I think back to C.S. Lewis's, we're making mud pies in the alleyway and happy with our mud pies when there's something amazing and eternal outside of the alley that we could be pursuing instead. Human flaws are a common blocker among many of the fallen away, and these human flaws cause us to have anger or resentment toward God and other people. And for me, this was a huge blocker for falling away. In fact, for Catholics, the sex abuse scandal made it very difficult to, con to justify continuing on with the faith. But God did not commit those acts. People did. And right now, today, there are adults committing those same horrors. Literally, right now, these things are happening in houses, in our cities, towns, villages, wherever. You know, the, you know they are because humans have these flaws. I suspect in 20 years, tales from the lockdown that we've just went through will begin to seep out of these, of these locked up households. Because where secrets live, sins hide. That is always the case. 
if you recall that TV test I was talking about is where would you do the thing that is not right if there was a TV camera following you around? The answer is probably no. You would probably not do these kind of things. But when people know no one's watching, many of these sins happen. And we've had a lot of that going on where no one is watching for quite a while now. There's no question that these sins revolt us, especially the ones of the church, of the sex abuse scandal. It revolts every one of us. But it, God did not commit these sins. People did these things. People do awful things when no one is watching, and it's not the first time and it won't be the last time that there's a scandal within the church or public schools or any of places where uh, these kind of things can happen. Within families, there are lies and deceit and division and discord. And unfortunately, that is the fallen state of humankind. So no matter what religion brings in the faithful or what political party takes power, no matter what ideology is the current winner in the culture, these same sins will continue. Capitalism doesn't fix it. Communism doesn't fix it. And anyone who tells you it does is full of something. These things flourish, these sins, they flourish under secrecy and isolation. And ideologies often will gloss them over when, there's, when the sins are there. They'll pretend they don't happen, but they do. For human beings, there's just no other way. I mean, even a child will steal a cookie when the parent walks away. And adults who have full reason, like a child stealing a cookie is very minor, but grown-ups, adults who have full reason, can conjure far worse actions than pilfering a sugar snack. But the root cause remains the same as the child. When no one is watching, the self and the ego take over. It's this classic story of the Garden of Eden when Eve and Adam think God's not there. They're easily talked into something different. They make a bargain. The snake is, of course, the devil, temptation, evil. Um, if you like the symbolism, if you like the literalism, it works either way. When authority disappears, the apple, the fruit, reappears. The thing we want to do is there for the taking when we feel like there's no authority. The genius of the story of the Garden of Eden is that you can witness it every single day happening like clockwork as the human heart, which is wired for God, is so easily short-circuited in its wiring by temptation and evil. And this is not the sole problem of just one culture or skin color or religion or political party or nation or family or age group or parenting style or diet or climate that you live in. In fact, sometimes I hear people think, well, in Florida, there's more crime because it's hot out. Well, I think that's not necessarily true, but um, the climate is not the cause, just as uh, someone's nationality is not the cause, or the Democrats are not the cause, and the Republicans are not the cause. The same flaw exists in every person who has lived, is living now, or will live in the future. And likewise, regardless of time, place, or physical attributes, there is but one cure for it, and that is turning back to God. To do so can be humiliating, but it fixes this short-circuiting and it restores the heart. And for me, to talk about the abuse scandal of the church, that shoved me away from God more than I already was shoved away. And as I had focused on the people who had committed the acts, and especially the ones, of course, who had covered it up, I did not think of the, the billion people worldwide that did good things with their faith, who found meaning in their lives, who did great works of charity, and who loved God first and foremost. So this is a case where we see the trees amid the forest, the sick and the twisted trees as representative of the whole. And it's easy to do this, especially with modern media 
um, where we will always focus on the negative instead of anything that was good that is good that is happening so like others i felt that all the trees should be torn down if such a forest allowed these horrors to grow within them and i realized in if that is is that is the way i view these things then thousands of school teachers a year um, who are accused of the same or convicted of the same crimes as those disturbed priests or clergy members then i should also call for the end of all public schools that they shall all be torn down and uh, raised you know um, there's other reasons for public schooling problems today that everyone's talking about um, families all over the world families not just uh, churches or schools or families within the the most loving group of all of your the people you love they commit abusive acts against one another all uh, since the beginning of time but I've never sought the destruction of the family so I had really reserved my worst anger against those who failed at holiness and I tried to corral God into the same pen as those men who failed, those people, um, whatever priests, especially you read like the, the Pennsylvania one um, or uh, some of those McCarrick reports, it's, it's disturbing uh, to say the least. It's more than that. The abuse scandal of the church horrifies and sickens me to the core as the church holds itself to a higher standard it's supposed to be set apart as it must be as it is meant to do which makes the abuse of trust that much worse if a claim to holiness is made then departures from that claim are magnified thousand a thousand times magnified and to think of the cardinal mccarrick story or the 300 pennsylvania priests abuse it brings forth a rage in me and ugly realities should and must be held up for all to see to ridicule the hypocrisy as the awful reality of child abuse will forever be one of the primary reasons for lost faith in a creator or loving god in fact bad fatherhood is often what drives people away anyway because they only see a fearful god or a hypocritical one it's the ultimate scandal when fathers are failing in their fatherhood the hypocrisy of false holiness is the greatest scandal of all um, it's a scandal to be a holy fool, like if someone who prays all the time or is constantly doing full-on literalism. Uh, think of the Westboro Baptist Church where they're um, just spewing hate all over. Um, everyone sees that as a comedy of what Christianity is, is. It makes it a complete mockery. That's a type of scandal. So there's the holy fool. There's There's also like the holy fool who will um, blame everything on demons, whether it's like, um, you know, his food didn't come out well from the restaurant, you know, you get into these bizarre situations where they're blaming strange things um, on the will of God that are not really meaningful. Um, they scare people away from God with um, like this manic literalism and, and a few other um, just bad founded ideas. But far worse, is to be a holy pretender who is rotten at the core. So if it's one thing to be a fool, and, and that's, that's actually not nearly as big a scandal as being a holy pretender when you have this rottenness at the core. And I'll tell you why. It's the, it's the hypocrite thing. And you know who else hated hypocrisy? Jesus Christ. That's who. And as far as children goes, as far as children goes, he said this. Whoever causes... One of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
woe to the world because of things that cause sin. Such things must come, but woe to the one through whom they come. That's from Matthew 18, verse 6 and 7. Pain and suffering will remain with us for reasons unknown to us. In fact, the suffering is the number one cause of people to gravitate toward atheism. It's why is there suffering? Why is this problem of pain exist? What is happening? So pain and suffering will remain with us, but the church is God's light on earth. And thus the horror of the abuse scandal damages the victims, especially the victims, and then also millions more to the point that the faithful should be and must be the most outraged. We should be the most angry, and that's both clergy and laity. The worst part of it is that the small percentage of predators in the church through the era of abuse have sullied and destroyed the work of the many good and uplifting priests and bishops and deacons and believers. And there are many for anyone who paints the brush, the wide brush. It's just like when someone paints all Democrats as bad, all Republicans as bad, all Russians as bad, all Americans as bad. It's, it's this um, extreme generalization and not seeing each person in the image and likeness of God that we are called to. Priests that I have known and interacted with who create joy and guide people, uh, they suffer from the choices of these criminal colleagues who, who did these things. Now, clearly, a culture that allowed it to happen has to be ripped out. It just can't happen ever. Um, while remembering that God did not do this to us, nor did the sacraments, nor did celibacy. Actually, it's interesting that reports of celibacy is not the cause. Everyone points directly to that priests can't get married. That is um, statistically doesn't make sense if you read reports on this. Um, it was a subset of corrupted human beings who shrugged off authority for ego and pleasure. When no one was watching, they could do what they wanted. They, they had authority, so they were taking advantage of that. So while the disgusting wound keeps healing and reopening, it is the work of those who believe to really eradicate the problem from stem to stern so that the trust of the faithful and especially of children can never be used against them again. As of now, there are steps being taken and it's too late for those victims, but the addition of the zero tolerance policies and training for all volunteers, the safe environment training, background checks, the codes of conduct, uh, there's the Virtus training, all of this and more will be needed going forward forever. And for a good read on this whole subject beyond my rant, there's a book, a short book by uh, Bishop Robert Barron called A Letter to a Suffering Church. Uh, prepare to be sad and disturbed, but there is hope. Uh, there is always hope. And he actually goes over some interesting uh, church history where the corruption, it, it comes up, it, it, it brings out a scandal. And then, of course, there's a retreat. Uh, people lose faith. There's they always you think of this the idea of the remnant, the believers who are truly believers. They're there. They rebuild, and then it returns. That's kind of the story of of the church itself. It's also kind of the story of human history of of order and disorder and reordering again. In fact, that's that's kind of what the Old Testament goes over. I feel like a hundred times. Um, okay. Moving on a little bit. So until I could finally set aside my own anger about other people's sins, perceived or imagined, and correctly or not, I could not let myself be open. And here, the trick is, even when I think I have done that, 
sometimes it sneaks back in and I'm not open. I had somehow forgotten, we don't pray to people, we pray to God. And I think of the moment when people left Jesus after they were disturbed about his teaching. This is John chapter 6, famous. Um, when, when Jesus said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Think of this. He, whenever, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And in the chapter, this revolted some disciples and they left him. They left. It's the only time in the Gospels where people leave Jesus. And it's, it's like the only, it's such a scandalous comment that people can't deal with it. And then Jesus asks the 12 apostles, he says, do you also want to leave? And Simon Peter says the words that those of us who believe still know to this day, and you can feel it when he says it. And he, Simon Peter says, to whom else would we go? To whom shall we go? So Peter says what we already know. We know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Peter says the words we all feel. He says, he follows it up after, to whom shall we go? With, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter's already tried everything else. And I think this is what non-believers never understand about why do people stay with the church? Why do they keep believing? Why is Christianity still going? It's because we all have the same notion as what Peter says so pithily with five words. To whom shall we go? Where else are you going to go? You've tried it. You've tried the seven deadly sins. You've tried pride and lust and gluttony and envy and wrath and, and sloth and all these things. And you know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That's why you keep coming back. So the same thing is we know we must remain and carry on and restore the church since we believe it is his holy church passed on through Peter and the apostles. That is a short and yet complete summary of why people stay and they run into the burning building to save it instead of fleeing the flames. So many flee, many flee and are disgusted and they can't see a way forward and others say, to whom else would we go? Jesus is the way. I have to go back into this thing and work harder um, and it's not that I'm going to save it. God's going to save it. So the root cause of the failure of these scandals is not God, and it never was God, nor was it Jesus or the Holy Spirit. Nothing of the triune God caused it. It was human beings who are not part of the triune God. We are, we are flawed and fallen creatures, but we're allowed to sin and abuse trust and turn away from God. And that's exactly the story of the Garden of Eden. It's, it's amazing that this simple story, which people love and hate, has the so much depth to it that uh, people will never stop talking about it because there's so much to this, this simple tree of knowledge, the, the fruit, the temptation, the uh, being talked into doing something that you know is wrong and then making excuses for it and then covering up yourself with fig leaves to pretend that it wasn't your fault. Um, somehow it, it, it was God's fault or it was her fault. Uh, you know, he, Adam blames Eve right away. All of these things. You can see the division that the snake creates by tempting them. Division right away happens. So, um, <clears throat> so the fix, uh, you know, with these flaws, it must be made um, not with the Trinity, <clears throat> the triune God, but with humans, just like it was in the garden and as it was at the crucifixion, as it is today, as it will be again tomorrow, as it will ever be, 
until the second coming on the day we cannot know where it will arrive like lightning flashing across the sky. That's speak of one other scandal is when people say the end of the world is coming in 2012 or 2000 whatever. Um, we are told that we do not know the day. So anyone who says that is lying and it's scandalous. So anyway, that was the problem for me. I conflated humans with God. And as a child, we're, we are taught not to pray to a person. No one's ever said to pray to a person. In fact, this is one of the huge confusions about uh, the Catholic faith where they say we, we pray to Mary. We don't pray to Mary. We pray for Mary to intercede for us, to speak for us to God. So um, for anyone that tells you that's what uh, Catholics do, that they pray to Mary or they pray to the saints, we don't pray to either. We ask them to intercede for us. Um, in fact, the Hail Mary has the saying, pray for us sinners. It's, it's in the main prayer that we use for that. So we're not praying to people or uh, Mary or, or um, saints. We ask for them to intercede, to pray with us. Um, anyway, so we are taught to pray to God. I think that pretty much goes for all Christian denominations. So now it makes no sense that I doubted God when what always scandalized me and others, it was a person or it was my expectations of those people that let me down. And it's a real revelation to learn that people will always let you down if you put your, your entire faith in them. It's not to say you shouldn't trust people or believe in people, but you cannot put your entire faith in them. <clears throat> and there's a saying among recovering addicts, it's this, an expectation is a planned resentment. And I find that to be a factual statement repeatedly as I can gain hindsight on past decades or phases of life. If a person or person drove me away from God, then what in the heck was I expecting of them to begin with? Was I expecting them to be perfect? I can tell you I was not even considering God during my drifting away from faith. I was focused on people, places, experiences, and I was expecting the impossible from flawed creatures, resenting the world when people did not act in a certain way. And I can even think of certain people that I held resentments toward even even after returning um, and rediscovering faith unfairly that I I did that. Um, so there's there's some um, difficulties even once you've changed, you know, you still think you are trying to um, dictate the world to control it to make it happen the way I want it. When you realize that other people will will have free will as well. And God knows what they're going to do, and God knows what I'm going to do, but I don't know what they're going to do, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So I have to realize that it's God's will what happens, and I have to make decisions because we have free will. So if people are the thing keeping you from faith, well, maybe they're not this, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's a different fence that's keeping you out. And I think the most common one today is, is that we're too busy. We're very busy. Our schedules are just booked all the time. Career or school or raising a family, it's, it's probably exhausting you like it does me at times. Well, I took this route, the busy route. In fact, uh, it's kind of interesting to say the, the way is wide um, that leads to destruction and the path is narrow that leads to God. <laughs> and if you think of the interstate highways um, or the in the cities where the traffic is just clogged, you can see that this, the, the path is wide leading to destruction in a sense. Um, 
in fact, though, I took various wrong routes. I mean, a gravel road can be as much of a wrong route as a, as a four-lane, eight-lane interstate. The weekend, you know, became something for social gatherings and parties and never for God. You know, once you move away, once you turn away from God, the weekend just becomes a fun time or a um, lazy time. You know, I always felt too weary to consider church because of the world. Uh, the weekday was siphoning the energy off. It was pulling it away. The weekend was about relaxing, mingling, recovering for the week, or often partying so hard that you were useless for the week, you know, back in the days of when that was going on. So um, that's that's something you, you, you use yourself up on the weekend doing these things that you know you shouldn't do, and um, you can't give one hour of that weekend to God. You don't give any hours of the whole week. You know, for one hour, you can't rouse yourself from the couch. It's, it's kind of amazing to think of it, one hour. I mean, how many of us married couples have elevated our children above our marriages and even over God? Think of how many youth sports tournaments and leagues and practices have overtaken Sunday mornings. It's always, there's leagues um, in the city I live in. Sunday morning, you can see parking lots full. You can see softball fields, baseball fields full. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting because that's one of the very first commandments to keep the day uh, holy. And there's many, 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 many Christians going to these fields and rejecting that commandment, which, um, yeah, we focus on these other sins of people and we're not even keeping the first ones. So then there's just the lazy pajama morning. How many Netflix video game marathons <clears throat> they swallow up the hours of Sunday? You know, it's still these amusing distractions of sports and media carrying us smiling toward our own spiritual deaths. I remember years ago, I read a book by Neil Postman called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he was, be, uh, he was lamenting the fact that our gadgets, even this it was written, I think, um, in the 80s or something, where how entertainment was, was amusing us to death. And it was, I thought it was actually quite profound at the time, but now I think everyone can see this as there's an article or story every day about what our phones are doing. Um, so it's not like this was a, a discovery. Uh, what's interesting, though, I was reading uh, a book called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. I'm not even sure how to say her name, but of the when they got when the family got a radio and they begin. And it's just this anecdote about how exciting it was to get a radio. Um, this was written in the early part of the 20th century and getting a radio would have been like getting a TV eventually or a smartphone or, or computer, whatever. But a radio, of course, was one of the first major technological breakthroughs. And as soon as they get the radio, they begin planning their week around what's on the radio. So um, although I would say the content of those early radio programs was quite different, where people would say, or it was classical music or classical stories, there was a very, uh, I would say, more useful purpose of the initial use of those technologies, just as there was with the internet before it um, began to devolve into our baser appetites and instincts of pornography and um, other useless things like um, that we see on there today. Um, anyway, I don't see anyone on TikTok listening to Mozart or hearing recitations of classical literature or, um, or philosophical debates. Uh, you can find it, but you got to look for it. That was the only option initially. So uh, regarding this, our own sloth, which really is what it is, it's sloth is one of these the deadly sins that we all just think doesn't really touch us. 
kind of like greed. We just kind of don't think that one really is, is part of our lives, but they are. Um, so sloth is like ignoring God um, and, and you're too busy for it. So there was always time. There was always time, but never enough time. So that's what I thought. You know, I was too busy, but it wouldn't have mattered if I had unlimited time. If I had 200 hours in the week or 300, I still wouldn't have made that one hour for church. I would have never done that because I didn't, first of all, I didn't believe, but not choosing not to do that is, is, is choosing to turn away. I mean, I would claim I was too tired or too indifferent. So for one hour a week out of the 168 hours in a seven day week, I could, I could give neither the time nor the energy to offer up a single prayer of thanks. World weary, a heavy heart, I'd slump in the couch and try to restore myself, you know, needed that time. Like the apostles in the garden who could not stay awake with Jesus for one hour as he approached the torture of the cross, I could not give one hour either. I could not move from the comfort of the couch. But I made sure I spent multiple hours watching sports or going to the gym or to a brew pub or shopping or engaging in whatever pleasure I could find, but I couldn't give that one hour. In fact, I couldn't even give a single minute. I fell asleep instead of giving that one hour to God, which is where the heart wanted to go all along. I stifled it and told it to be quiet. I'm too busy for that, I said. I need to watch this three-hour football game, followed by another three-hour football game, and maybe the night game for nine hours total. I needed to, I need to stare at my phone and finish reading this editorial on what happened in who, wherever, whatever scandal, whatever story of the week is happening. The hard truth was that the screens were draining me, not restoring me. Even writing requires a screen, so here I sit, a hypocrite, recording this, writing as usual. I'm always on the screen somehow, and that's what I'm trying to figure out how to not do that. I imagine that what I'm doing on the computer or my phone is important, because, but it's really just being busy. I'm just being busy. Reading news or information seems important. You can hear people that they, you really got to keep up on what's happening in the world, but it's not as important as other thing, the other thing, the first three commandments. Learning something is wonderful. Um, getting knowledge is great, but it can feed the ego more than the soul, depending on what you are learning. If I'm learning about a new programming language or how to build a birdhouse, then yeah, there's a benefit. There's, there's a purpose. But if I'm reading about the latest news story and then it does nothing but agitate me and I don't plan on doing anything about it other than complaining. And, and we all know people who have a news obsession. It's infected and overtaken their actual lives. This gossip and garbage information, it empties me out of all the, all the grace, really. If it kills off any sense of sanctity that I might have carried with me into that virtual realm. It's the words holy, sacred, sanctity, hallowed. Those words all didn't mean anything to me until my turn back to trust in a higher power happened, which for me came through um, addiction and falling off my horse in that way with like St. Paul. Um, you know, if you're lucky, sometimes you can get knocked off your horse. Um, <laughs> it's the best thing that can happen to you. Those holy things and ideas were words that I just mocked and reviled because they blocked progress, knowledge, and efficiency in getting things done. So, um, you know, I wanted purpose for everything, something in this world, some kind of advantage. And so to follow along with that, yesterday I heard someone say that art class in elementary school is a waste of time because it would never get the kids anywhere in life. But then I thought, where are the kids going? Where that they need to get in life? Where is a child going that art, religion, music, or literature classes won't get them? 
I think I think it will get them exactly where they need to go. For a time, I was in agreement with that sentiment. Too busy for foolish things, inefficient things. Um, it, it actually the 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 tyranny of efficiency is something I always think of. What the Germans fell into, where they were getting rid of useless people, or uh, in the forties or thirties, and they were they were losing the complete purpose of why we have unproductive pursuits. You're too busy for unproductive pursuits like art and religion and literature and music. Um, and, and just people that don't advance your agenda somehow. So what happens is, is you get this busy schedule and you think because it's efficient, you're filling all your hours, that's progress. But until after you perform that act of busyness for several years, you discover that foolish things and unproductive pursuits are often the very spice of life. And if those things even touch an edge of art or music or religion or literature, it's, it's like magic. Um, busyness, I mean, think of when you've seen a movie that moves you to tears or you hear a song that can bring you to the, the verge of tears or, or euphoria. I mean, those, those are useless things. You're not producing anything. You're not making any money, um, but they're the greatest things. Um, business and industry end up replacing the sacred. We want biz busyness, um, work, industry. Sitting still becomes an enemy. Being busy pretends at being good behavior, working, taxiing children to activities, exercising, politicking, watching the latest TV show. That's, that's what we think of as useful. Well, the latest TV show may touch onto the realm of art and music. So there is some, I would say, there is some um, great stuff about TV shows that are works of art. You know, The pursuit of all these things they make for a constant chase of knowledge at a thin and surface level, level and keep us distracted and really divided from our, our own purpose. It's like the narrator of The Great Gatsby. Um, I always thought it was interesting. There's this line in The Great Gatsby uh, where he, the narrator says he aims at becoming the most limited of all specialists, the well-rounded man. And he's kind of poking fun at the well-rounded man. The goal, his goal of being versed in all subjects or having knowledge in all areas is, is like a fantasy. Um, if you consider how people sit around fires with friends today compared to years ago before the invasion of the smartphone, when you sit around a fire, you would come up with conversations that dug up questions that had no answer in the present company. And when the answer was unknown, we'd make up stories and jokes about the possible answer amid the firelight. But today, the moment a question is introduced, because we have access everywhere, Hands reach for phones to look up the answer because we want the truth as given by Google and whatever else. All of the imagination and joking is killed off instantly as the spark upon such kindling for conversation has water drown it immediately. We throw the water of Google onto these natural conversations and wonder and mystery. There's so much less wonder, imagination and conversation because Google exists. Although software companies like them spend so much in advertising to assure us the opposite. They're setting us free. They're empowering us. They're actually stealing from us. Uh, the fireside story or tale has become someone who loves their phone, reading a Wikipedia article to those seated at the fire and the dead imaginations around the fire nod and say, hmm, today I learned TIL and it's not nearly as interesting. It's like leave your phone in the tent when you go camping. But as for me, the pursuit of knowledge, it really was a thinly veiled pursuit of approval and acceptance and self-justification and my expectations of others to see me as valuable. Um, 
So then it was kind of like a planned resentment. I can hardly see it any different from the constant cleansing of the Pharisees or like uh, Muslims who have to wash many times a day before prayer or even um, some uh, holy people who are constantly trying to, uh, they're overly scrupulous about cleansing. Um, this cleansing is also done to our modern obsessions and those things we want so badly, um, knowledge or sex or money or power. What we really want is love and respect to be seen to be relevant and and we're desperate for the approval so we'll try to wash ourselves constantly then there is the possible horror that i'm still pursuing approval among readers and writing a blog and recording this podcast the horror here is that i've learned nothing in this very writing and, and reading um, is is my latest pursuit of approval and yet you know i still feel i have to share the story as the experience of surfacing from a drowning state into a drying out compels me to write and read these things now. The change from pessimism to optimism, it happened, and it, it was slow at first, but then it seemed to happen overnight. And all these markers along the way were showing how I lost trust in God and the markers where I took turn the turn to come back. And it leads to this radical trust. And of course, now nothing is the same. Um, lastly, the, the change struck me so hard and the fix made total sense. I could suddenly really stopped seeking approval in all the old places and it jarred my entire sense of universe and earth and self and soul and meaning and purpose into a order that I didn't understand. I realized that putting my trust in the old sky fairy quotes was the key to the door that opened to peace and it shocked me so much that this sentence that this sentence proclaims it here and now. It was the abandonment of any need for pharmaceuticals confirmed to me that this God-shaped hole in our heart is a real thing. And so I'm almost grateful in a way for the culture today that silenced and tried to hide God away. It lured me away from the secret and discouraged talk about the subject. It encouraged me to look for answers elsewhere in work and the physical and ability and, and in alcohol or drunkenness. And it coaxed me to explore all the avenues of self-worth only to make me so fully aware of it in the end that the one glaring omission of meeting meaning sat sidelined through it all. And sitting on the end of, of the bench of my roster of meaningful pursuits sat Jesus of Nazareth, the last player to enter the game for me. It was the humble one, the ignored one, the avoided one, the mocked one. He sat patiently while all the other flashy players who talked a big game, they all limped back from the field of life. All my expectations of what they could give me and my resentment, my intern resentments. I finally turned to that one remaining person, the player, the one I needed the whole time. And I said, okay, Jesus, let's try this. I've tried everything else. Get in there. I, basically, I was saying, to whom else would I go? Like Peter to Jesus, when he says, do you want to leave me too? He says, well, where else am I going to go? Only to find, of course, that this last player is the greatest of all time. And now he is the only one needed. All along, he was the only player, coach, owner, and fan that I ever needed. And the joy of gaining this valuable knowledge would seem a shame not to share. And for anyone else who might be thrashing about in those same waters and not sure where the life boy is located, I feel I should share it as it took me so long to reach for the hand that was waiting to be grasped the whole time. And hopefully you can start to see a little bit where your own expectations might be planned resentments. Thanks.